Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 314, Leonard Cohen and Other Rabbis. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today we are going to be talking with Harry Friedman, the author of a new book on the songs and poetry of Leonard Cohen, and specifically the roots of Leonard Cohen's songs in Jewish sources and Jewish traditions. Before we get into that interview, just a word about the Unyeshiva, our Center for Jewish Learning and Unlearning. We are offering four courses this semester, four full semester courses. They go for 12 weeks, taught by Lex, me, and our dear friends Tova Birnbaum and Kashira Halev Fife. If you're interested in learning more about those classes, you can listen to last week's episode of Judaism Unbound. You can also head over to the Unyeshiva website at unyeshiva, that's U-N-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A dot com, or just go to judaismunbound.com slash classes. And if you're listening to this podcast the weekend that it comes out, now is your time. The deadline is approaching. The classes start next week. And so you should sign up now or in the next day or two if you are hearing this episode the weekend that it comes out. If you're hearing it after the weekend that it comes out, you should sign up for next semester's on Yeshiva classes. I do want to mention that there is a sliding scale tuition so that you can pay what you can afford within that scale. And if that sticker price, such as it is, is still too much for you to afford, there is a way to request additional financial aid. And thanks to some financial support that we've received, we're able to offer that financial aid. So don't be shy. Please request the aid that you need in order to take on Yeshiva classes. We don't want cost to be an obstacle. So now let's turn to our subject for today. And I should note that we're going to be releasing a bonus episode in a couple of weeks in which I interview today's guest, Harry Friedman, at length, specifically about Leonard Cohen and his music and his ideas, and we go into much more granular detail than we are going to on this episode. We think you're going to find that conversation interesting as well. And like I said, that bonus episode will be available in a couple of weeks. Our guest today, Harry Friedman, is the author of the new book, Leonard Cohen, The Mystical Roots of Genius. The book is not a biography of Leonard Cohen. Instead, Harry Friedman looks at many of his songs and explores how Leonard Cohen reworked myths and prayers, legends and allegories from Judaism, Christianity, and other sources. Our guest today, Harry Friedman, is Britain's leading author of popular works of Jewish culture and history. His other publications include The Talmud, A Biography, Kabbalah, Secrecy, Scandal, and the Soul, and The Murderous History of Bible Translations. His most recent book before the Leonard Cohen book is called Reason to Believe, The Controversial Life of Rabbi Louis Jacobs. He has created popular introductions and more than introductions, explorations of some of the most significant texts and topics in the Jewish tradition. And in doing so, he's made them accessible to those of us who are not professional scholars or who don't have a lot of history studying these topics. Harry Friedman, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you, and it's particularly thrilling to talk about this topic with you. 
Hi there, James. I'm delighted to be with you. So pleased to be talking to you. So I'm curious about the project of writing about Leonard Cohen on two dimensions. One, I'm curious about what led you to write about Leonard Cohen. What were you thinking about in the process of writing and why did you choose this project? But then I'm also interested whether you have had reactions since you put out the book that may have surprised you, that may have been confirming of things that you thought. I'm, I'm thinking about the role that Leonard Cohen seems to play in the imagination of contemporary Jews, including this contemporary Jew for whom Leonard <laughs> Cohen may be the closest thing I have to a rabbi or a prophet. I'm wondering whether that is common, and if so, why or how people think about the seemingly unique role of Leonard Cohen as someone who's both a contemporary rock or folk singer, but also something deeper than that for many Jews? To start with your second question, there's no doubt that most Jews, certainly of a certain age, and I, and I must qualify that because I've met a lot of young Jews recently who say who? So it's not, it's really no. not. Millennials, Gen Z, let's get our act together. Really, really, really. There are a lot of young Jews who just have no idea who I'm talking about at all. So let's talk about people, I don't know, over the age of what, 35, maybe 40? I don't know. But certainly of, of, of a certain age. Leonard Cohen is, what is he? He's not, you, Dan, said he's a rabbi to you. I don't think he's a rabbi to most people. He is certainly a role model of some sort. Um, is it because they're proud of him because Jews tend to be proud of famous people who are Jewish? Or is there more in what he says which makes them think this guy's got something something to tell me? I can't I can't really answer that. What I do know is when I started to write the book, because really it was just a quite a complete accident, I was, was listening to Hallelujah. I said this in the introduction to the book. I was listening to Hallelujah and I heard him sing. I heard there was a secret chord which David played, which pleased the Lord. And I thought, I was just for the first time I was listening to the words rather than just listening to the you know to the music. I thought I know what this guy's singing about. So I listened a bit more and I realized that the whole song is is based on biblical stories and a little bit of Talmud as well. Um so I you know I, I realized that this is a guy who's worth looking at more because what I've done all the way through my career is to try and write about Jewish things for audiences who are not necessarily immersed in Judaism, you know, a lot of my audience are people who just are interested in Judaism in the same way as they might be interested in football or, or, or anything else. So, you know, I, I listened to this song and I realised that there's something going on here, but I don't think that most people, when they listen, most Jewish people, when they listen to Leonard Cohen, are necessarily listening to his biblical or Talmudic or Kabbalistic words. I think they might have a sense they're there, they're not listening to them in the same way as I was trying to pull them across in the book. I was trying to explain what he's doing in the book, which is um, unique, which is based on Jewish sources, where those sources come from, why he might have used them. I don't think most people think of him in that sense, but they do think of him in the sense of him being a, a Jewish character who is important to them in some way. If you ask them, for example, is Leonard Cohen more important to you than Bob Dylan? I think probably the answer is not from a Jewish point, Jewish point of view. I don't think anybody was, many people would say, yes, Leonard Cohen is far more Jewish than Bob Dylan. They might do once they read my book, once they stop, stop to think about it. <laughs> I don't think off the top of their, their head they would simply say, yes, he's more Jewish than Bob Dylan. I think they may say he is more respected as a Jew than, than some other people, but I, th I don't think they would say he's more Jewish than Bob Dylan. These are both successful Jewish artists who... Jews are often proud of simply because they're Jewish, because they've shown that Jews can interact in, in the world, in the secular world, not just in business and the things that we, we know we're good at, but in, but in entertainment as well. 
Once you look at some of the Jewish sources, like in your book, and you understand how deeply immersed he was and how a lot of his work is coming out of that engagement with Jewish sources, it, it doesn't strike me that there are so many people who end up doing what he's doing, and, and that's in two different ways. One, there's people who are so immersed in the Jewish sources, and they end up becoming some kind of artist that's very narrowly Jewish, like they write songs that are, you know, sung in only in synagogues, and maybe their their melodies or their, their new ideas. And then there are people like, you know, maybe Paul Simon, and maybe Dylan is a, is a little more like, for example, in Highway 61 Revisited, he'll, he'll take on a Jewish text with more depth. But mostly you say, well, these are people who, they were Jewish, and it mattered that they were Jewish, and that their music comes out of a Jewish sensibility. But the content itself is not that often engaged in the sources, whereas Leonard Cohen feels like he's doing something almost unique where he's immersed in the sources, but he's crunching them up, he's mixing them into together with other sources, and he's coming out with something profoundly new that feels actually like in some ways exactly what I wish was going on so much more in the Jewish world, which is that there would be more Jewish art that was actually moving things forward and that was making new things out of the old Jewish stuff, and that feels rare to me. Yeah, no, no I, I agree with you 100%. I think you, that from that perspective, Leonard Cohen is quite unique because he is the one who is using Jewish sources and, and, and building them into his work and, and showing how you can create stories and ideas and philosophies using Jewish stories in a, Jewish sources in a contemporary context. Um, I think what I was saying in my in my previous answer was that there are, that I don't think most people recognise that about him unless they stop to think about it. It doesn't it doesn't hit you between the eyes. You know, in other words, his use of Jewish Source, and, and this is, you know, one of his great strengths. His use of Jewish sources is in no way evangelical or in any way trying to get people to think, oh, yes, here's a Jewish source. I must understand what this is about. He is simply, this is just his vocabulary. It's just the way he's, it's just the way he's talking. And I, don't, I didn't meet Leonard Cohen. It may well be that he spoke in, in real life when he was talking to a friend in the same way. I, I don't know. Jewish sources are his vocabulary, but he is unique in that. I don't, I don't know of anybody else who uses Jewish sources in the same way, not just in music, in literature, in uh, in art. You know, the, uh, you, in art, obviously, yes, of course, there's a huge tradition, particularly in, in, in Christian art of, of, of biblical images, but I don't know anybody from a Jewish perspective who, who does that. I think in Israeli music we can find it, but not so well, much in... Israeli America. music, maybe, yes, but in Israeli music they're using it because it's cultural, because it's just, it's just part of the, you know, part of the way they, they think and engage with each other. Whereas Leonard Cohen, is, he's not doing this because he grew up in a deeply religious background where everybody was talking about religious sources all the time. He did grow up in a, in, a, in a religious home, but it was a westernized home. It was a Canadian home, and his family were very much, you know, trying to, trying to settle down and settling down as English-speaking Canadian citizens. They weren't out there trying to be, as some families are in the West these days, just exclusively Jewish with no mind to what's what going on around them. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to, in our show notes on this episode for listeners, um, I'm going to put a, a couple references. I, I agree with you that it's really rare, and I can't think of many examples like this among musicians. I am going to put in our show notes a link to Ezra Furman's episode with us. She I, I, she expressed that she sort of is a follower of Leonard Cohen, and I think in certain ways is a current musician that's doing some of this. But I, I want to ask a, a different question, or start with a comment. I'll get to a question. Comment. I, I am teaching a course this semester in our digital center for Jewish learning and unlearning. It's called This Too is Torah. And when I talk about it to people, 
I tend to describe it as we look at different realms of human experience, you know, film, music, food, as sacred, as forms of Torah even, as really important, basically. And sometimes when people like don't get it, I'll start by saying, you know how Leonard Cohen is sometimes used in synagogue liturgy and like people can relate to Leonard Cohen as more than just a musician? Like picture that. But for all sorts of other stuff, like Leonard Cohen is the gateway drug right. to to a lot of this thinking that I believe is very important. Yeah. And um, I think the reasons for that are what you've talked about so far, right? That he that it's so clear that there's like a depth of knowledge Jewishly and there's also like real seeds of his own creativity in it. And I think that, you know, you use the word genius in the title of your book yes. for a reason. But I guess I... I'm curious, like, to think about two different ways people deploy Leonard Cohen. Because at this point, sad to say, like, we don't have Leonard Cohen as primary voice. We have him as quoted voice by others. The metaphor I'd give is Leonard Cohen as the center of the page. So, like, picture a prayer book. So, I'm picturing if we're reading a prayer book for Rosh Hashanah, and we're talking about who by fire, who by water, right? You could place Leonard Cohen in the center of the page yeah. for that prayer that he's sort of giving a, I don't know, a commentary on or a new take on. And if you place it in the center of the page, you're kind of saying this is our synagogue's experience of who by fire. You could also put it in the margins of the page yes. as a commentary on, I'm going to say in quotes, the real thing, the traditional text yes. of who by fire, Unatana Tokef. And you could see it as like a commentary. Yeah. And I'm curious, not so much like how you experience Leonard Cohen, but how you'd sort of analyze what's happening there. Like, why is it that people are deploying Leonard Cohen in those two different ways? And how might they differ from one another? The illustration you gave just now is interesting because the reform movement in the in Britain, where I live in the, in the United Kingdom, the reform movement brought out a Rosh Hashanah Maksa some not so long ago, and they did exactly what you just described. They had the traditional words for Unutani Tokev, who by what, what Leonard Cohen calls "Who by Fire," in the centre of the page, and his lyrics underneath. So that's you know, in in a sense, he he was the commentary on the on the initial prayer. I think that if you're going to put Leonard Cohen in the centre of the page. And you're then going to be looking at other artists uh, in, in, or creatives in a wider sense. I'm I'm struggling to know who you would have round round him. You know who who would be the commentaries on Leonard Cohen. To clarify a little bit, part of what I'm getting at is if Leonard Cohen were the center of the page and the traditional text, like the Unitana Tokev uh, uh, text, were the margin. I'm actually getting at that kind of inversion. Right. There are certain Leonard Cohen songs, Who By Far is one of them, Hallelujah is another one. Maybe You Want It Dark, although it's a bit too soon to know. There are certain songs which are being sung in synagogues, which are finding their way into prayer books, which I ask the question really in, in, in my book, will these songs still be there in two or 300 years' time? We have a tradition in Judaism of people writing synagogue music, and it goes back to the 7th or 8th century. We have a tradition of people writing synagogue music, which then stays in our in our liturgy. And some of those, for example, Unitani Tokev is one of them. Um, I mean, the, the legend, there's a legend about it, it comes from the 11th century. There's a much earlier version of it, which comes from, we don't know when, 3rd or 4th century. Jewish liturgy is is built up in layers written by people over centuries. And the question that I'm asking at the end of my book is, 
will never occur and be one of those layers. In other words, if we come back in 500 years' time or even 200 years' time, will people still be singing Who by Fire or Hallelujah uh, in the same way that they're singing the, the, the ancient versions today? If the answer is no to that, then I suspect the answer is only no because of our zeitgeist, because of where we are now. We live in a world where things change so fast that whereas a thousand years ago, if you wrote a poem, it would be remembered, today it might not be. Um, but I think that Leonard Cohen has the same quality, the same essence that people like Khalil, who was one of the earliest of these poets, has. The ability to take and to take Bible stories and Jewish folklore, Midrash, Jewish folklore, to take those things and to weave them into new messages and new songs and new ideas and, and to create new images, verbal images with them. The difference between Khalil and Leonard Cohen was that Khalil was doing it for the synagogue, whereas Leonard Cohen was doing it for himself and for, and, for, and for his audience. But nevertheless, it is finding its way into the synagogue. I now have three relevant playlists on my phone for this. One, I have one that pre-existed your book, which I call Leonard Cohen Prayers. And it was all the Leonard Cohen songs that I had identified that I experienced as prayers, that I think he intended as prayers, that I, I when I listen to them, I feel elevated in some spiritual way. And that is a much more significant prayer book in my life than the Sidur is. It, it's, it functions for me as I imagine the Sidur is supposed to function for people for whom it functions, which is that it actually makes me feel something when I listen right. to it. And I will listen to it at a certain time of need. And it really functions that way. I also made a playlist when I was reading your book, uh, which I haven't, you know, sort of really listened to over and over and over again yet. But I was interested in in sort of making a playlist of the songs that you identified as the ones that were most drawing on Jewish sources. And, and I'm, I'm kind of sitting with that. And then we actually have another playlist that we created a few years ago, which was a an attempt to put together in a new way the High Holiday Liturgy using a variety of songs, contemporary songs by all kinds of artists. And for example, the what I call the Torah reading part of it, which is about the Binding of Isaac on, on Rosh Hashanah. That's the Torah reading that we have. So we have Leonard Cohen's story of Isaac. We have Highway 61 revisited by Bob Dylan, but we also have songs about difficult relationships between fathers and sons, right. not intended to be written sort of from a Jewish perspective or for a Jewish liturgical use. Whereas with Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan, they probably didn't intend it for Jewish liturgical use, but they were consciously drawing on that particular text. And, and I think it's interesting to sort of think about both in terms of the present, but also the past. Is, is it the case that all the material that we now use for Jewish purposes, and I don't only mean liturgical purposes like Nesidur, but you've also written about the Talmud and about Kabbalah. I'm wondering whether in other parts of of the Jewish tradition and textual tradition, there are things that were not at all constructed for the purpose of being used religiously by Judaism, but then one way or another, they became incorporated into the mix. And how did that go about? And was it controversial at the time, et cetera? Well, I think I think that absolutely you're right there. And I, I think the most obvious example of that is Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim, which is a beautiful erotic poem, 
which has found its way into the Bible. I mean, clearly nobody ever sat down to write a Bible, but, but, but when Isaiah wrote his book or, or, or when the Book of Kings was written, they knew they were writing Jewish religious history. When whoever wrote Song of Songs, in, in the tradition it's King Solomon, but let's assume it, it wasn't, it probably wasn't. Whoever wrote the Song of Songs, did they think they were writing a religious song? Did they think they were writing a song which we, you know, rabbinically we interpret as the, a song about the love between God and Israel. Well, thanks, but was, was, that, was that really what was going through the mind of the person who wrote it? So I think yes. You know, I, I think the, the answer is there is stuff which is um, which has come from outside, which we have adopted. And another one, another great one, is the story of Esther, the Book of Esther, the Book of Esther, whose heroes are Mordechai and Esther, whose names are very similar to the Babylonian gods Marduk and Ashtarte. We we have taken what seems to be a Babylonian or an Iranian or some you know some folklore from elsewhere, and we take it into the Bible. So yes, there's no, there is no question that we have a um, in our most sacred texts, and certainly in our, in our less sacred texts as well. In other words, in rabbinic response through the centuries or whatever, we have influences coming from ev- from everywhere. Maimonides was influenced by Aristotle, you know. So yes, you know, we the, the, these things do come in. I don't think it's beyond our you know, imagination, particularly since we live in such a diverse Jewish world now, where there are so many different streams of Judaism, to see that uh, not just Leonard Cohen's music, but all sorts of other Jewish works which are coming from outside, maybe even Jewish film, who knows, which would one day you know, be part of our, or maybe even already are part of our liturgy. Yeah. So you said very quickly, and I want to really sit with what you said Song of Songs, probably not written by Solomon. Strong agree. <laughs> our, podcast, our podcast strongly agrees with that statement. And honestly, I think most of our listeners not only won't have a problem with that statement, but will co-sign. But I want to okay. name it because that's, of course, not everybody's approach. And for many people, it's, you know, of religious importance that a particular person, Solomon, wrote Song of Songs and, you know, some of the other biblical books at a specific time yeah. in history. And the fact that that's true is important. And if it weren't true, all sorts of questions would come come up. And um, But I, I want to bring that up because it segues us into another topic that you've delved deeply into, which is a person that I don't believe we've talked about on this podcast, but it's a person named Louis Jacobs. And he's somebody who... A lot of his life revolved around this question of what has often been framed as sort of opposites, right? The the classic approach to traditional text being true and from God, Bible being from God and divine, versus, you know, biblical criticism, the idea that that humans wrote the Bible, that somebody... I guess Solomon, if you think Solomon wrote that part, you're not saying God, you're not saying that a human didn't write the Bible, but you are saying a specific human did. And so I was curious to start going into that direction and see where it might lead us. Who was Louis Jacobs? And for those of us interested in questions of biblical interpretation, why might he matter to us? Louis Jacobs was a a very controversial figure in British Jewry. He wouldn't have been controversial in the States. I think it's really important to say, to say at this point, he wouldn't have been controversial in the States because he was his Judaism really was not that different from the old conservative movement in the States. But in, in British Orthodoxy, where he was an Orthodox rabbi, he raised the question of who wrote the Torah, or at least not so much who wrote it, but do, do we accept that the Torah is given on Mount Sinai, word for word, to Moses, who then transcribes it and gives it to the, to the nation, the Israelite nation, and it's handed then down through the centuries. 
And his view very much was that we have to accept the findings of science, we have to accept the findings of rationalism, and if literary study of the Torah text suggests there is more than one author, it shouldn't challenge our religious belief to say this work is divine, but it may not have been dictated literally on Mount Sinai, it may simply have been written under inspiration by different authors over a period of time. That is a perfectly straightforward piece of theology from the conservative and the reform movements. But in orthodoxy, and certainly in British orthodoxy at the time when Louis Jacobs was writing, when we talk about the 1950s, 1960s, it was heresy. He always regarded himself as an orthodox rabbi. This is a very important part of, of, of his worldview. Orthodoxy to him had to be capable of dealing with science, of dealing with the challenges of rationalism. One of his mantras was, it's not what Maimonides said then, it's what Maimonides would have said today. Because Mm. clearly there are many things in Maimonides' writing which we were were uncomfortable with today, but he was at the same time a a strong rationalist. And for him, the great tragedy of orthodoxy was that it was was becoming dogmatic rather than becoming open-minded. And he he took this attitude also into halacha as well. Again, it's not, yeah, I don't think it would be a surprise to to conservative Jews in, in America, but he showed how Orthodox halacha had evolved over the centuries, that, the, that when a rabbi gave a, a, a rabbinic ruling, although he based it on his sources, he knew where he wanted to get to before he started, and he found the sources which, which were relevant. So if we take that back to the idea of King Solomon writing the Song of Songs, yes, the tradition says that King Solomon wrote the Song of Songs, but it doesn't say it in as dogmatic a way as it says that Moses received the Torah on Mount Sinai and, and handed the oral Torah to Joshua and, and handed the physical place, place of physical the Ten Commandments in the Ark, in the, in, in the Mishkan. It, it doesn't do that. I don't think it would necessarily challenge their faith to be told that this book wasn't written by Solomon or to, be, to have a suggestion put in front of the book wasn't written by Solomon. But so we, we, start, we started this point on Louis Jacobs. And I think I just want to sort of finish with Louis Jacobs because one of the almost the great tragedies of his life was that he became defined by this question, this question of who wrote the Torah and biblical criticism. In a sense, he did, he did it to himself because he, you know, he spoke about it in his sermons almost every week. But his literary oeuvre, he wrote something like 60 books. And as a Jewish teacher and as a Jewish writer, he's up there with, with the greats of, of our age. And it's a shame that he's sort of, that people see him, particularly your thoughts, where they see him as a heretic. He believed that God gave us a brain and we should use it. I wanted to kind of um, make a connection and a compare and contrast with Louis Jacobs and Leonard Cohen in a certain way, which is I'm thinking about there's there's something going on right now these days. I'm not sure if you're aware of it at all, but there is a a woman who has been doing these short videos on TikTok that are reacting to the daily Talmud page, Dafio Me. I heard about and, it the other day. My, my brother was going to send me one. He never did. So I, I still haven't seen one. I'll, I'll send them to you after the recording. You know, so dif- different people that Lex and I know, you know, have different opinions, but they're only about like how insightful it is. You know, I, I think it's really great. I li- watch it every day. Other people maybe a little less, but nobody in our world is saying, you know, how dare she do this? But yeah. it seems that in the Orthodox world, and some of this is getting reflected in some podcasts that I've listened to that kind of are people connected to that world, a lot of the reaction is saying, 
well, I think what she's doing is really good, but everybody I know thinks it's terrible and nobody should be doing it like that. And so the, the debate becomes how terrible it is or how not terrible it is that she's doing, as opposed to this whole other segment of the Jewish world that isn't even asking those questions and that's actually being engaged in Talmud by what she's doing. And right. I'm wondering whether somebody like Leonard Cohen, who is positioned outside of the traditional Jewish infrastructure, not only gets away with it in terms of the people who are not traditional, who who love what he's doing and who are connecting to Judaism through it in certain ways, but the Orthodox world seems to have very little problem with Leonard Cohen, even though his music is infused with all kinds of Christian imagery and all kinds of Buddhist imagery and all this kind of stuff. Somehow they don't find that to be problematic in the, the way, same way. Dan, whereas- I'm sorry to, I, I do want to know, not to distract too much, but like I think it might be relevant that Leonard Cohen is a white guy and Miriam Anzvin is a yeah. young white woman. That's part of it. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I want to ask, like, look, there's what, there's one possibility that it's that there's a there's an element of misogyny going on and, and all that kind of thing. So so Miriam Anzavin is an interesting case study. But I, I think Leonard Cohen versus Louis Jacobs is two white men. I mean, there's a there's a question there about whether it's actually and, and here I want to go back to, again, to some of what you discovered in your other researches about how the Talmud came to be and all kinds of things like that. Is it maybe that realistically these changes that ultimately will take root, and like you were saying, that we will be reading Leonard Cohen as prayers in hundreds of years from now, but the only way that that's really possible is when somebody from outside the system is really doing it in a deep and substantial way, and then it can later be kind of imported as a whole, as opposed to somebody who's within the system trying to do something new, and that'll generally get them kicked out as a heretic. Okay, so I think that, I think there are two points there, Dan. I think the first point is Louis Jacobs versus Leonard Cohen as as to what you know why one is acceptable and one isn't. Although I would I, I disagree that Leonard Cohen is acceptable to the Orthodox. I think most you know, really Orthodox people have never even heard of Leonard Cohen, so I, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. But certainly they wouldn't have a problem if they listened to Leonard Cohen. The point about Louis Jacobs was that he was regarded as an Eloi, as, as a Talmudic genius by, by, the, by the Gateshead Yeshiva, which was a yeshiva established during the, the Second World War for European, serious European rabbinic scholars who managed to escape from, from, from Poland and from Germany, who were brought to England. And this was, the, you know, this was the cream of European scholarship. And Louis Jacobs was amongst them. And he was regarded as one of their geniuses. And, th- and then, then he effectively let them down. They saw him as the future. And he turned out to be a different future from the one they envisaged. So there's a whole area of disappointment and almost a sense of betrayal in the Orthodox world about their attitude towards Louis Jacobs, which clearly there is not for Leonard Cohen, because Leonard Cohen is not wasn't even a rabbi. Leonard Cohen was just a, guy, a Jewish guy singing songs, and you know if they listen to it, they might find it amusing, interesting, whatever. It didn't have to challenge their faith. So I, I don't think you can you can draw a comparison there. I think what is interesting though is that Louis Jacobs obviously lived in England. But he came, he toured the states a few times, and he went to Canada once. And he spoke at the Shah Hashemayim synagogue in Montreal where Leonard Cohen grew up. So there is, there is a connection. I'm, and I've discussed it with, with the people at the Shah Hashemayim synagogue, and they seem to remember Louis Jacobs coming very well. The second, the second part of your question, Dan, was, was really about how things come into the tradition and whether things can come in from outside. I don't think orthodoxy would ever admit anything from outside the tradition into its liturgy. There there is no question that a Leonard Cohen song might be sung in an orthodox synagogue. Yes, you might, in a a sort of more liberal-minded orthodox synagogue, 
they might sing Adon Olam at the end of the service to Hallelujah. They might just do that, but they certainly wouldn't import the words of Who by Fire in place of the, the, the traditional words of Unatane Tokyo. Just, just wouldn't happen. I think we have to differentiate and say that within the more liberal-minded, within the more progressive-minded streams, within conservative Judaism, reform Judaism, in England, liberal Judaism, within those streams, yes, it's, it is very likely that you could bring in not just Leonard Cohen, but other people as well. Uh, within orthodoxy, I, I, I don't think there's ever any chance of that, because otherwise it wouldn't be orthodoxy. It, it, it would have already given in to, to, to heretical uh, leanings. So I had no idea we were going to be talking about Miriam and Zavin, although I shouldn't be surprised because a lot of the conversations I'm having with anybody about anything are turning that direction. But I'm thrilled because we've got a triple threat of people I, I doubt have ever been considered together, which is to say Leonard Cohen, Louis Jacobs, Miriam and Zavin. Now, I want to think about them from our specific Judaism unbound, emphasis on the unbound perspective, because I think part of why they're all arising – or part of why Miriam Anzavin arises after the first two, is that each of them are what I would term straddlers of boundaries. They push us to question certain separations or boundaries that exist in life or in Judaism. And what I mean by that is I would describe Louis Jacobs's boundary straddling as like theological. He is straddling Two things that are sort of treated as mutually exclusive, but he's arguing they're not mutually exclusive, sort of a deep connection to Torah as divine and also biblical criticism and modern scholarship. That's sort of a theological boundary cro uh, crossing or straddling. Leonard Cohen, I think, is taking on a sociological boundary crossing between things that we tend to think of as quote unquote religion and quote unquote culture. I think he what he creates is something that is hard to it's hard to place easily into one of those two boxes and that's part of what's so fascinating about him and why he can be in a synagogue's service one second and then on the radio the next second. The third with Miriam Anzavin, um I'm going to do another logical uh, technological part of people's problem with Miriam Anzavin is the very fact that she is exploring Dafyomi on TikTok, this, you know, to sound crotchety, this newfangled gizmo on uh, on the phone. And it's also, this isn't, this doesn't rhyme with the logicals, but linguistic. She uses a lot of crass language. She uses like contemporary internet discourse in what she does in a way that people are not used to hearing around Talmud. It's another boundary. We draw, you know, oh, we have special words that we use in sacred context, but then we keep you know, swear words for internet conversations. And she's straddling that boundary. So I guess what draws you, I mean, you haven't written anything about Miriam Anzavin yet, but to the first two, what what draws you to these folks that seem to be straddling various boundaries? And on a show like ours, where we're literally called Unbound, what might you say we're able to learn specifically from folks who are taking categories in our heads and saying, you know what? I kind of question those. I'm going to straddle those. As you were talking, I'm thinking what Miriam Anzarin is doing is exactly what Louis Jacobs wanted. Because you, you know, you said she's on TikTok. It's not. It's not kosher. It's, you, know, this, you shouldn't be talking about Dafiomi on TikTok. But actually, 
20 years ago, you shouldn't have been talking about Dafyomi on, on, on the internet either. And yet the internet is full of Dafyomi shiurim and Dafyomi programs and Dafyomi explanations and everything else like that. So all Miriam Anzavin is doing really is taking it to the next level. TikTok is the contemporary internet from, from 20 years ago. Now, Louis Jacobs would say, but this is how Jewish law evolves. Jewish law has always been dynamic, has, all, has always evolved, has always responded to the needs of the times and continues to do so unless it becomes becomes fossilized in certain aspects of, of orthodoxy. So I think those two people really illustrate what Judaism is all about and the opportunities which are open if you if we just open our minds a little bit. Now, Leonard Cohen equally fit, fits into this conversation, not just because of what you said about culture and religion, but because so much of Leonard Cohen's music contains the word window. Mm. And the window for Leonard Cohen is a boundary in the song, The Window, he says to us, to, to a soul, he's singing to a soul, why do you stand at the, at the window immersed in beauty and pride? The, the, I can't remember the exact words. He's, he's telling this soul to step through the window. The soul is hesitating before ascending into the, what we call a mystical union. Um, it's quite clear that's what the song is all about because he, he describes various stages of, of ascent of the soul in the song, but it's the window that's stopping it. The window is the boundary. So for Leonard Cohen, the window is a liminal space. And in a sense, all these three people are dealing with liminal challenges, the challenges of stepping outside boundaries into other boundaries, which is what you're doing in Judaism Unbound, of course. It's very interesting that you've called your podcast Judaism Unbound because for many people, people who are not particularly keen on the fact they are Jewish, the problem with Judaism is that it binds you. You should bind them on your arms and on your head is, 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 is the defining thing which an Orthodox male Jew and, and, and many other Jews do today. Constraints, limits, and yet we know from any sort of experience of history that we're not constrained and we're quite prepared to move our boundaries as, as time goes by. And I think that all those three, those three people you mentioned are, are, are good illustrations of that. When you said earlier that orthodoxy will not bring in Leonard Cohen songs or other things into the liturgy, because in, in a sense, that's what defines orthodoxy is, yeah. is not, to, not to do that. And I want to distinguish between orthodoxy, as many of us think of it today, as a movement versus orthodoxy as just like a way of being. And because the orthodox movement is relatively modern, it's something that arose in the last few hundred years. But the impulse to be what we think of as orthodox, right, the impulse to resist change and to not be flexible, as you're talking about, that's been around a long time, but as has its converse, right? And and what I want to kind of tease out a little bit is when we think about how you answered earlier, right, that there are so many things that didn't start off as Jewish texts that became so, like the Song of Songs, that means that somebody at some point in the past was doing something unorthodox, right, or unbound. In other words, that orthodoxy, people think of orthodox as the way it's always been, but that's 100% wrong, that we've always had orthodox and we've always had unorthodox, right? And, and that to truly understand the history of things, it's really, how would you say, a conversation, a dialectic between those two. But of course, the word orthodox only means correct thoughts. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's Greek. But I think that also it's, it's, not just, it's not just a question of orthodoxy versus non-orthodoxy. I'm not disputing the fact that Song of Songs was written by a Jew. 
or a Hebrew or whatever they were they were called in those days. I just don't think they wrote it for a religious purpose, but it was part of the cultural literature of that of that age. And you know, as I said before, nobody sat down to write a Bible. The Bible was compiled, and who, you know, as the Bible was compiled, it was compiled over centuries. We know this because there are discussions in the Talmud in, in, in the 4th or 5th century, maybe even 6th or 7th century, about what goes in and what doesn't go in the Bible. And we also know that there are references in the Bible itself to other books which we no longer have. So we know it's compiled over centuries, but people found works of literature and said, yes, this one's coming in. This one's not coming in. And, and that's how the Bible was compiled. So the Song of Songs or the Book of Esther were put in there because whoever was doing the compiling at that particular moment in Jewish history found them of some particular spiritual significance. Orthodoxy today and the sort of the, the, the closeness of orthodoxy, I think, has to be understood in terms of its reaction to first the Enlightenment and then the emergence of reform. The, the, nobody was called orthodox until there was reform. Once there was reform, then everybody who wasn't reformed became known as orthodox because what else were we going to call them? Just like the Hasidim, when the Hasidim came along, everybody who wasn't a Hasid was called a Mitzneged, an opponent. Well, that's, that's, not, that's, that's not a theologically defining word. That is just simply means somebody who's not, who's not a Hasid. And I think orthodox is the same as somebody who wasn't reformed. So orthodoxy, yes, it has put up the, the shutters, it's put up the barriers. A lot of that obviously has got to do with Shoah as well and, and, and a sen- a, just a sense of fear and a sense of persecution, a sense of how, you know, how are we going to survive? We're going to put up the shutters. Um, but I think that Judaism in its wider context has always been open to, to outside thought. Otherwise, as I said before, we wouldn't have survived, you know, and we have survived in so many different cultures that we had to absorb from all those different cultures. The, the, the Judaism that I've absorbed living in the UK is different from the Judaism you have, you have absorbed living in the States because the, the, the influences I've had are differences to yours. They may not be hugely different, but if you think about somebody in the Ottoman Empire versus somebody in Amsterdam two or 300 years ago, hugely different. The boundaries of Judaism are flexible, they may be different in different places, but yes, I think Judaism has always been unbound. It's good that you're, you're saying it again now. Yes, I'm glad. You're giving us a lot of good, clean quotables for why our, our title is what it is, Judaism Unbound. <laughs> um, I, another quotable of yours that I love is, you know, nobody sat down and wrote a Bible, that it was compiled over centuries. Yeah. And that is just a perfect segue to a book of yours that we haven't spoken about yet. And I'll be direct with our listeners. I try very hard to read, usually fully, but at least in part, any books that we are talking with guests about. You've written a bunch of books that we knew might be relevant to this conversation, so I wasn't able to read all of them. I didn't get to read The Murderous History of Bible Translations, but it's an amazing title. And it it gets at this question of sort of what the Bible is and isn't, and how it's been used over time. So I'd love to get a little bit of that from you before we go. Um, Translating things is really sometimes contentious. Um, I've made the joke that canon, C-A-N-O-N, you know, we talk about biblical canons and other kinds of canons, that it should be spelled C-A-N-N-O-N, that it's like shots fired (laughs) from a canon. So biblical translations being murderous, or at least potentially murderous, is certainly something that makes a lot of sense to me. But what's the ikar? What's the essence of the murderous history of Bible translations? And does it tie to what we've been talking about so far? 
So the, the intellectual essence of that, if you like, is that every translation is, is an interpretation. And if you allow, because you can't, you know, and the example I always give is the French word aimer, which means to like, to like or to love. So if, if I say in French, I can, I can mean I love you or I like you. Now, in English, those are two completely different concepts, but in French, it seems to be the same concept. I don't know. I'm not French. I don't quite understand how it works. But certainly one word has two completely different meanings in, in, in our language. So therefore, translations are always in some way interpretations, because if you're going to translate the French word aimé, how are you going to translate it as like or love? It's going to change the context of, of the passage. And anytime somebody translates the Bible, you are effectively threatening the status quo. You're threatening the religious authorities of the times. And this is clearly clearly stated in the Talmud because it says that the day that the Talmud, the, the Torah, sorry, the day the Torah was translated into Greek, we're talking they're talking about roughly 300 BCE, and the Talmud says the day was as dark for the Jews as the day that the golden calf was made. So, in other words, you know, they did the rabbis did not like it because what's happening? What's happening is that the Torah is being made available to Greek culture. And to Greeks who thought very differently from Jews, and you know the, the story of Hanukkah, for example, is a story of the ideological battle between the Greeks and the Jews, and, and not just in terms of a, a war over the temple, but in terms of the way they fought, the, the Greek focus on beauty and the, and the, the Hebrew focus on, on the word. These, these are fundamental concepts. Translating the Torah into Greek suddenly opened up Jewish thought to alien ideas. So we see in Judaism that the translation of the Torah into Greek was a threat to the rabbis. And in Christianity, the Catholic Church preached the Bible to its, its worshippers in, in, in the churches, and it included concepts like hell and purgatory, which are nowhere in the, the Christian tradition at all, in the Christian biblical tradition. Catholicism had a big thing about purgatory and a big thing about hell, but the Christian Bible doesn't mention them. Well, hardly ever, maybe in the book of Revelation, but, that, but, that, but that's all. The Catholic Church was deeply threatened when in the, in the 16th century, after the Reformation, people like Tyndale, the proto-Protestant biblical translator, starts to translate the Bible into English. It's been translated into English before um, at, by Wycliffe in the 13th century, and, and, he, and he was burnt at the stake for it, I think, and certainly, certainly his bones were thrown in the, were ground up and thrown in the river. The, the, the translation of the Bible for Christianity threatened the power of the, of the Catholic Church. So that's basically what that book is about. Translations are dangerous things because they allow people to think for themselves, and that's not what you want if you're running a religion. Yeah, and, and to make that connection back again to Miriam Manzavin, but really what she stands for, is just this idea that there's something that's actually happening in our world right now that relates to all this, which is really just the, it's the combination of translation and the internet. And so Jewish texts are available to regular people in a way that just has never been before. And that is both very generative and very scary. And you can see various, again, looking at history, you can see various levels. Before printing, manuscript texts of any sort were very, very rare. And if a community had one copy of, of, of the Talmud, they were doing well. And if you, could, if you wanted to see what a certain rabbi had said and was about something else, you might go to a community a hundred miles away to borrow a copy of, 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 his, of his manuscript. Then printing comes along and suddenly everything becomes standardized and you get the Shulchan Aruch, which is the first printed, first widely disseminated Jewish law, code of law 
And all these little villages and stables around Europe, and probably around the, the Ottoman Empire as well, suddenly are being told, this is how you do it. So diversity disappears, and you're starting to get a rigid structure. And now what we've got is a sort of movement away from we, we have the internet, which is, in a sense, you've got Safari, which is opening things up again. Suddenly, it's all becoming open. It's impossible for anybody to say, this is how it's done anymore. But for, you know, for a period of, from, from, from the beginning of the 16th century, until the beginning of the internet, Judaism is coming more and more rigidly controlled because of these, because of printing, basically, and the, and the things that were being printed. In terms of Safaria, it's the coolest name for an organization because it's like a pun, and people don't realize it's a pun. I love my interlingual puns on this show. It's a play on Sifria, which is a Hebrew word for library, but then it's blurred with safari, which is both like the idea of exploration and safari, like in English, and a literal internet browser called Safari. So that's a non-relevant thing. My question is based on the fact that as we record this, Safari just a couple days ago announced that they have seven new translations of Torah that will now be available for everyone online. So in the past, when you've gone to Safaria, they have the whole Tanakh, you know, the whole Bible. They have all the Talmud. They have lots and lots of Jewish texts. But you haven't always had multiple choices for which translation you go with. And as somebody who has spent time going to Torah studies, where people bring their own translations it is truly amazing. It's not just trivial little things that change about a story or about a text when you switch the English translation. It can be the entire weight of a story. You can soften something that's really horrifying. You can make something significant that might have been a trivial phrase in other English translations. You can do so much. You can leave words out that are in the Hebrew and sort of fudge it in the English. You can add words in that weren't in the Hebrew. And so I guess as a closing question, given that we now are in a world with seven translation options on Safari that we can all explore. And given that that ties to everything you've said about Bible translation, I have a metaphorical question, which is, is Leonard Cohen a translation? Like, is Leonard Cohen's work a translation from Jewishness, Judaism, to extra Jewish stuff? Is it the other way? Is it a translation of our contemporary society into Judaism? How might we think about translation as applied to Leonard Cohen's work, how might it tie to the fact that we can access different literal translations of Jewish work today? In terms of Leonard Cohen, yes, absolutely, he, he is a translation, absolutely. Um, because first of all, he's singing it in English. Secondly, he's not singing the actual biblical quotes. He's not singing the actual Talmudic legend. He's singing, already singing his version of it. He sings, you saw her bathing from, your faith was strong, you, you needed proof, you saw her bathing from the roof. Well, that's not the biblical quote. You know, the biblical quote is, is, is more complicated than that. He's condensed that, that, that whole, the, the two things, the Talmudic legend and the biblical story, into two lines of, of a poem. So, yes, he's a translation. He's a translation who, if you listen to him, it works for us. But like all translations, it's a midrash, apart, you know, apart from the translations which are the Peshat, which are the plain meaning. It's a midrash. It's, it's a way of interpreting the text. So yes, absolutely, Leonard Cohen is a translation, but there's nothing wrong with that. That is a good thing. An amazing note for us to close on. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much indeed. 
And thank you so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to remind you that our On Yeshiva, our digital center for Jewish learning and unlearning, is launching our spring 2022 courses this coming week as we release this episode. And uh, if you're listening in the first couple days of this episode, you can still sign up for courses. Just go to judaismunbound.com slash classes and... Uh, check out our four courses. We encourage you to sign up and journey with us into the first steps of the Anyashiva. So we also want to close this episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound for our handles. Second, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always email us at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. And you can do that via judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.